0: Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course we find out the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. If you haven't already, do take a moment to rate and review the podcast as it really does help to spread the word about Desert Island Dishes. And that way, I can keep bringing it to you every week. I have followed this week's guest forever, so I was very excited to get her on the show. Her food is beautiful. Her photography is amazing. And literally everything she posts online, I just want to put on my Pinterest board. She's brilliant and as you'll hear, she's very modest and my gushing compliments made her a bit uncomfortable, but I continue to gush away. Sit back and relax as you listen to Sky's Desert Island Dishes. So my guest today is Skye McAlpine. Skye is a Venice-based food writer, blogger, and photographer. She is the author of the successful blog, From My Dining Table, and has written for many of the big-named publications like the Sunday Times, Vanity Fair, and The Guardian. She spends most of her time in Venice, where she writes, teaches cookery workshops, and practices her photography. She has called Venice home since early childhood, and with her debut book, A Table in Venice, she provides over a hundred recipes and brings to life the food of Venice in the most romantic, intriguing, and just plain wonderful way. Skye has said, "'As is the way for those who love to eat, my happiest childhood memories are centered on food. Little has changed for me on that front as I've grown older. I remain the kind of person who remembers life through what they ate and how it was cooked.' Welcome, Sky. <laughs> thank you so much for having no, me. Thank you so much for having me in what is quite literally the most beautiful flat I've ever been in. <laughs> like, I asked you off microphone, but I'm going to ask you again, is there anything you can't do? <laughs> There is no answer to that. (laughs) So I have to say from that quote, you're just the ideal person to get on Desert Island Dishes because I know you wholeheartedly agree that food is about so much more than necessity.
1: It really is. It really is.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't know if I was just feeling a bit overly emotional when I read your book, but reading it did actually make me feel a bit overwhelmed, but in in a really <laughs> good way, because it's just so beautifully written and the words just leap off the page and sort of, into your soul without sounding over dramatic.
1: Oh my gosh, you're so kind. You're you're too kind. No, no.
0: <laughs> but do you feel really proud of it?
1: I am very proud of it. I'm very excited. By I've always wanted to write a cookbook. It's been such a dream for me. And I have derived so much pleasure over the years from reading cookbooks, kind of like novels. So the writing was very important for me and it was a part that I'd really had the luxury of being able to take my time with, as it's a book I'd been thinking about for a long time. And I really enjoyed the whole process of writing it. So to think that you are enjoying reading it makes me incredibly happy.
0: Yeah. I mean, it goes without saying that the recipes are just gorgeous and I can't wait to get cooking from them. But the fact that you also did the photographs and that you're such a brilliant writer, I mean, it's just such an amazing combination.
1: Oh, you're very kind.
0: (laughs) So your parents sounded like the most wonderful hosts and brilliant cooks. So let's talk about your first Desert Island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, this is such a tricky one because I was a very greedy child. So
1: there are so (laughs) many dishes that remind me of my childhood. But I was thinking about it and I think it has to be saffron risotto, which is, I mean, I love all risotto, but saffron somehow is my favorite. And my mother makes an incredible saffron risotto. It's really, really buttery and I kind of that beautiful yellow. And it, it just, she used to make it for me on Sunday evenings kind of to rid us of the Sunday night blues, yes. which <laughs> we always get. And it's just, for me, it's just such comfort food. Just that smell, that incredible kind of flowery.
0: Yeah, just smell. amazing. The
1: butter and the onion
0: and the wine. And it's just, Yeah. I love the idea of having a food that you can have on a Sunday night to sort of rid you of the Sunday night blues.
1: It's the best way. Yeah, (laughs) The only way I
0: know how. Food is always the answer, (laughs) isn't it? So before you moved to Venice, your mum, is it right that she had a catering business? Yes, she did. So she'd actually, she'd spent... She would lived in Rome for a few years in her early 20s and completely
1: fallen in love with La Dolce Vita and life there and Italian food and the Italian way of living. And she'd learned to speak Italian and it had been, I think, an incredibly happy chapter in, in her life. And then she'd come back to England and built her life here and met and married my father. And before I was born and for the first few years of my life, she'd she had the catering business and a, a food shop in Mayfair that was one of the first shops importing Italian <gasps> and French uh, prodigies at oh. a time when kind of you, it was people still believed that spaghetti grew on trees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she I guess love of food really runs in the family, and she really kind of projected that to me. Yeah, that's so
0: cool. And how was it that you guys ended up in Venice?
1: So we moved there when I was six and the idea was to stay for a year, but we really loved it. So we've not left yet.
0: That's amazing. (laughs) What a lovely story. So I know that you say that you yourself are not a chef because you've had no formal training, but (laughs) you've had a lifetime of teachers just in different guises from your mother to your great aunt, your childhood friend and her mother. So let's talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook.
1: Well, I was thinking about this and I think the first dish that I really learned to cook has to be tiramisu. <sighs> and this was a recipe that came from Maria, who is one of my childhood friends' mother. And is she is sort of universally acknowledged as the best cook in Venice. Oh, really? She is wonderful, incredible, incredible cook. All her food is very, 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 it's so Venetian and very Italian, completely simple, but just perfectly done. And so it's her recipe, but I came to learning how to make it late in life. I first made it when I was 18 and I'd come to university here in England. And it was kind of a bit of a culture shock for me because I was sort of away from home and Venice is a very sheltered yeah, small town. And so it was a big change for me as it is, I think, for anyone moving away from home and starting at university this um, charming young man who is now my husband, oh. but at the time was just a dashing stranger. He had the great luxury of his, his rooms also had access to a kitchen,
0: Ooh, yes. which was very cool. Yeah, that is cool.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> so he was using his kitchen facilities or his limited kitchen facilities to host a pasta party. And everyone was meant to kind of bring something and I didn't know what to bring. So I thought, what can I cook? Because I didn't have access to these so these swanky kind of kitchen facilities. I just had a little sink in my room. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, tiramisu, you don't actually cook tiramisu. I sort of knew that. So I called Maria up and I was like, please, what's the recipe? How do I make it? So she sort of told me, she obviously knew kind of completely off the top of her head. Yeah. Scribbled it down on post it notes. And then I was whisking the egg whites and over the sink in my little room <laughs> and I made the tiramisu and I took it over. And it, it actually, it, it was really quite good. I mean it was it was good. It was Maria's recipe, so it couldn't not be good. And it was really lovely. And I think that was the first thing that I really remember cooking for myself by myself completely from beginning to end without kind of relying on a cookbook? Yeah.
0: And do you think the tiramisu had something to do with falling in love with your husband or your husband husband falling in love with you? Yes. I think it explains
1: everything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What good tiramisu.
1: Yeah. I
0: mean, yeah, it's in the book and I am going to make it. And what makes a really great term. Like, can you, can you have a bad one? You can have a bad one. Okay. What yes, yes, is a bad one? I very strongly about this. Okay. Um,
1: so a bad one is, you need to use the Savoyardi biscuits. Okay. It's sort of lady, lady finger biscuits, not sponge. If okay. you use sponge, some people do, but then when you soak it with a coffee, it just goes too mushy. So you need that kind of biscuity texture. So it soaks up some of the liquid and but still has a bit of bite to Okay, it, yeah. Almost al dente. And funnily enough, someone was telling me, and I thought this was very interesting, because tiramisu is is Venice's great contribution to the culinary world. It's like Venice's dish that's been picked up and done everywhere. So Venetians are very proud of their tiramisu. But apparently the original tiramisu was made with these biscuits called baiicoli which you can get in Venice. And they're sort of very, very thin, dried, almost like crackers, okay. slightly sweet crackers. And so they used to make it with that. So it's always better to make it with a biscuit rather than a sponge. Mm, that's a good and then tip. And the other thing is some people make it with whipped cream. Yes. Instead of it should be mascarpone. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) They are wrong. (laughs) Shaking your head there. Uh, The way I like tiramisu is made with a mascarpone and then you whisk the egg whites and the egg yolks and you fold them in. So it becomes really light and airy and sort of slightly custardy. Mm, Yum. And then coffee, you can't leave out the really strong, good
0: coffee to so No, I mean, the lady why would you leave out the coffee? I know, that no. would be such a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your career and how it all started. What made you just decide to start your food blog in the first place? Like, had you always been a writer?
1: I hadn't always been a writer. I'd always been a reader okay. <laughs> and an eater. But that's a great place to start. It was a great, and, and I just, I, so at the time I was doing a PhD in ancient literature, so okay. kind of not particularly Relevant for (laughs) what I do now, but it was very fun at the time. But I took a year's maternity leave when I had our son, Aeneas. And in that year, I spent more time at home. And I guess I sort of, I don't know if I had more time on my hands, but I just kind of felt the need to to kind of do something more creative. Yeah. So we always had people over for lunch and for dinner. I've always tried to persuade people to come over, luring them over and trying.
0: I mean, I can't imagine they're hard to lure
1: over. (laughs) (laughs) I um, I love feeding people. So that's my favorite thing to do. So I I guess I just started, I'd have people over for lunch or dinner, and then I'd start kind of writing the recipe and a few thoughts on it and and putting it up online. And I really enjoyed it. It was lovely kind of writing and taking that time. And it was lovely the feedback that you, you get from the online community. Definitely. So did it start to grow quite quickly? It did. I mean not super quickly, yeah. or I didn't think, but, but quickly enough. I mean, there were people, it amazed me whenever anyone was reading it. So that was completely thrilling. And and then readers would leave comments and then it would kind of, there was this lovely conversation going and I was really enjoying it. And then I was quite lucky from there, sort of transitioned to, transition to Being asked to do a couple of freelance pieces, and suddenly I thought, "Gosh, this incredible thing that
0: I love doing, this could be a job." (laughs) Uh, I mean, yeah, what an incredible moment! (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and I read an interview where you you talked about getting writer's block. What are your tips for getting over that, and where do you find your inspiration? I still struggle so much with
1: writer's block. I'm, but I think it's just writing something. That's what I've really for me. I think for me anyway, writer's block comes from me having a whole internal conversation in my head before okay. it gets to the page. <laughs> so I'll have an idea and then I'll be like, no, that's silly. Or I'll have another way of saying it and it'll be like, no, no, that's not how you want to say it. And I think the best way to get over that for me is to just write it, write something down. Yeah. And then I have something, and then the editing process is always more sort of, sort of satisfying, and you get closer to it. And often, what I'll end up with is completely different or is
0: almost always completely different from what I started off with, but I needed to take. Yeah. That's that. Step. Like, that doesn't matter at all, does it? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's the end result. The,
1: but it, it takes me quite a long time to get to where I. So I sort of now know that it just takes me a long time to write. I haven't mastered writing quickly yet maybe that will come (laughs)
0: yeah Uh, I I can't believe that this is your first book I feel like I don't know I've read so many of your recipes I feel like I sort of already own lots of your books. but (laughs) how long did it actually take you to write it
1: it took me I think about it was about a year to to write it or just under but I had been thinking about it for a long time so
0: yeah (laughs) It's so nice. like It's the book that you've been wanting to write ever since you started. Yeah, I feel really lucky to have had that chance to kind of put pen to paper. Yeah, and almost really nice in a way that you didn't write it straight away. Like it's been formulating for a long time. And I think that's partly why it's so beautiful. Very kind. (laughs) (laughs) I'm embarrassing you with all my compliments. (laughs) The third Desert Island dish is the best dish you've ever eaten. Oh...
1: I thought about this one a lot yeah. too and it's very tough competition, but I think the best dish I've ever eaten has to be the torta meringata at Harry's bar in oh, Venice. Yes. And it is, it's absolutely incredible. It's um, three, usually three or four layers of Genoese sponge and then they layer it with a sort of whipped Cream custody whipped cream. And then it's soft Italian meringue kind of burnt on top. And it's absolutely incredible. And I never make dishes from restaurants. I have this sort of very strong view that restaurant food is for restaurants and home cooking is for the home. And, and I'm quite, I never, you know, if I go to a restaurant and absolutely love it, I never buy the cookbook and try and make it Yeah. But this cake is so good that I have the Harry's bar cookbook and I've tried to make it three or four times at
0: home. <laughs> or more
1: and it is good it's just
0: not as as good good. yeah (laughs) I I
1: don't know how they do I don't know what they do but it is absolutely incredible
0: that does sound amazing oh yeah I wanted to ask you one of the recipes in your book was a custard tart with pine nuts yes which is so unusual I've never had a sweet Dish
1: with pine nuts. Pine nuts, no. Um, pine nuts in uh, uh, use a lot in Venetian cooking, both in savoury and in sweet. So yeah. actually, there's so there's another recipe in the book for fritelle, which are these doughnuts which you have for carnival. Oh yeah. So just before the start of Lent. And they're peppered with um, candied peel and raisins and pine nuts as well. Yeah, I guess they're, they're really creamy, aren't they're they? They're really creamy. Mm. And actually, there's a fantastic gelateria near home that does sometimes, they're always changing their flavors. But sometimes they do pine nut ice cream. Ooh.
0: That's delicious. Is it? It's really oh my good. Goodness. How intriguing. Yes, very, very good. (laughs) The the book is centered around the idea that the food actually eaten by Venetians remains, as you say, Italy's biggest secret because the food cooked in homes across Venice is very different to what a tourist will encounter. How would you categorize the difference in what people might perceive to be Venetian food versus what it actually is? Well,
1: I think Venice is a particular case of a city
0: because the
1: tourism industry is so... Big and thriving, that it's almost overwhelming. I think it's something that's over 20 million visitors a year. Oh
0: my goodness. Venice has
1: a population of something like 20,000. No, sorry, 50,000. Okay. But still, it's it's, it's, it's quite disproportionate. Yeah. (laughs) So I think there is a real tendency where people come to Venice and eat pizza and pasta that's quite generic. And not kind of really truly Venetian, and leave and feel that they haven't eaten well, and this helps, or particularly well. They've they've seen wonderful carpaccios, and they've seen kind of beautiful um, sunset over the water, looking onto St. Mark's, and kind of other incredible things. But for the food, they feel a little bit meh. But I think the food is fantastic, and if you and Venetians, like all Italians, eat incredibly well and are incredibly excited about food it's sort of national
0: passion yeah yeah <laughs> it's a good national passion <laughs> the fish sounded amazing like what what's the kind of fish where there's one that you just can't export because it can't be out of oh, the canoche. water canoche. yeah canoche. they're delicious they're sort of these really
1: funny looking things sort of halfway between a langoustine and a sort of shrimp they're called mantis shrimp i think it's the English translation. And yes, they, they need to be eaten within something like 24 hours of being mm. fished out of the lagoon. So they're almost impossible to export. Yeah, and you
0: have amazing um, soft-shell crab. Fantastic soft-shell crab. That's seasonal, but it's so good. It's so, good. <laughs> <laughs> so you say that if at all possible, when in Venice, you should try and get into the kitchen so that you can take advantage of the I, amazing produce.
1: Yes, I think so. I think increasingly with Airbnb and so forth, really go to the you know if if you have access to a kitchen then rent rent somewhere with a kitchen and then go to the market and look at the fresh ingredients try and buy all the ingredients or all the produce that looks really unfamiliar but you're like what is that buy that cook that (laughs) yeah that's so interesting isn't
0: it because when you go or when I go somewhere I always feel a bit like I'm shortchanging myself by cooking because maybe you might cook what you'd cook at home but obviously that would be the worst thing to do but to go to the market and actually use the ingredients that sounds like a really lovely thing kind
1: of go without it go without a shopping list yeah and the the guys who sell the stuff at the market, I mean, everyone's super passionate about food. So if you say, if you, I think that's the other thing is Venetians are quite jaded because the tourism industry is so... Predominant, and they. I think there is a strong feeling in the city of visitors coming to the city and not really caring. Yeah. But if you can show that you care, if you show interest, you'll get a fantastic reaction. Yeah. So if you say, "Gosh, these artichokes look fantastic. How should I cook them? What should I eat them with?" Unless you're really unlucky and get something yeah. very grumpy, <laughs> uh, I mean, well, you get them boots, which. <laughs> You, uh, you will get kind of a fantastic reaction, and he'll say, "Well, you must have them with the parsley, and then cook them in the pan." Or my mother likes to do them this way, and you'll kind of, I think, discover and uncover recipes just through that. Yeah, and the same I think really applies if if you don't have access to a kitchen and you're eating in restaurants. I think one trick is really good beyond trying to avoid the centre of town yeah. to the degree that it's possible. And so my tips are, I think. Go to restaurants that look really dodgy. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) sort of the grungier they are, and the more dated their decor, and the less snazzy they look, probably the better the food. And once you go in, ignore the menu. Just say to the waiter, "Say, look, what's good today? What should I eat?" And You'll get such a kind of positive reaction, and they're really excited to share with you. And quite often, they'll bring out dishes that aren't even on the menu, and it's what they're having for mm. their lunch, and, mm. and or it's something that maybe they had a very small catch of the soft shell crab or something like that, and
0: they haven't got enough to put on the menu, but they'll they'll bring you some. Yeah, that's a great tip. Are you allowed to tell us some of your favorite restaurants? Are they heavily guarded? No, no, no <laughs> I have
1: I have lots of favorite restaurants. Um, Al Corvo is probably one of my absolute favorite restaurants, and there's so super friendly and their food is absolutely sublime and always very imaginative, but working with completely traditional flavors. And it feels so cozy. I love that. It's also fantastic and very traditional food, but completely heaven. They do um, in the summer, they, in the summer months, they do this fantastic salad with, which I actually sort of tried to roughly replicate in the book with um, fresh figs and Longustine. And it's and a bit of parsley and a very light dressing and it's so good. Kind of a bit like um,
0: palm ham and melon, that sort of sweet savour. Yeah, that sounds delicious. It's really good. Mm. Those are some top tips. <laughs> uh, the fourth desert island dish is what is your favourite sandwich?
1: So I think it has to be a panino con mortadella, which I know is not chic. It's not glamorous, <laughs> but
0: it's delicious. <laughs> but it's very yeah. good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so talk us through. So, I would say crusty, white, very good bread. Yeah. And then mortadella. I love mortadella. Good mortadella is wonderful. And it's quite funny when I was working on the book, I had this uh, conversation with my editor who, one of the, because one of the recipes is for crostini with mortadella and pistachio. And he said, I sort of described the mortadella as sophisticated and sublime or something. I was like, I really don't think of mortadella as either sophisticated or sublime. I'm like, really? That's just (laughs) because you (laughs) haven't had a good one. (laughs) It's very funny. I I like this in Harry's Bar, which is sort of the chicest restaurant in Venice. One of the items that they have
0: on the menu is just a simple plate of mortadella. Mm, It's so good. I'm with you there. Yeah, it's so good. But maybe... Maybe it doesn't have such a good reputation over here. Like maybe it's harder to get really great. I think maybe it's
1: harder to get good mortadella. Yeah, people
0: have just had it in the supermarket and it's a bit meh. Yeah. But that's the same with lots of cured meats, isn't it? If you've had bad ones, they're not very exciting. Exactly. Yeah. So I love the way the book is divided up almost by the sort of geography of Venice. And it's so clever. I felt like I got a real sense of the character of Venice as told through the food. And it, it felt very romantic in a way. Let's talk about the Venetian breakfast because you describe it as being frivolous, extravagant and an irresistibly fun way to start the day, which sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> what, does well, it consist- <laughs> <laughs> what does it consist of?
1: It's always something sweet. And it's funny because breakfast is the one meal of the day that there isn't this whole ritual of really sitting down. It's a much more sociable. It's a much sort of faster paced meal. So you take it usually standing up at the bar and you'll have something like a brioche, which is a bit
0: like a croissant, but breadier and doughier. Because it's different. A Venetian brioche is slightly different to what we think of as a brioche. Yes, it,
1: it is. Exactly. So it's not like brio- like the French brioche yeah. bread. It's more like a croissant. It looks just like a croissant, but the dough is less buttery and flaky than a French croissant. It's more... Uh, doughy and bready. And it's filled with apricot, traditionally with apricot jam, but some will fill them with custard or some, even I've had one, one place does them filled with pistachio cream, which is amazing. Yum. <laughs> uh, so, so it's something like that or a few sweet biscuits or a slice of torta di ricotta or something like that and a milky coffee. And that's kind of, and you'd have maybe a spremuta like an orange juice or something. And you'd have that standing at the bar, but it's still a very social meal because whilst you're at the bar, you always go to the same bar and you can kind of catch up with, the guy's behind the bar and it's like, what's the weather doing? What's the What are the tides like? Is it going to flood? And there's all this sort of yeah. chat
0: going on. And so is it is breakfast the kind of thing that you, you wouldn't really make at home? People go out to People have it? People
1: will go out or if they have it at home, whenever I would sleep over at friends' houses in Venice when I was little and we'd have breakfast at home, it would still be kind of brioche or oft,
0: quite often um, sweet biscuits dipped in milk. Yeah, sort of warm milk or, or, I
1: guess, a very milky
0: coffee. Yeah. I mean, the idea of having a breakfast cake just makes me feel like I was born in the wrong country. I love breakfast <laughs> cake. <Yeah. laughs> Sounds so good. The fifth desert island dish is the dish you eat the most often. I think that's got to be pasta. Yeah. <laughs> Great answer. So what would be your favorite?
1: That's that's tough. I love a good carbonara because
0: it's, so, it's just a complete sort of store cupboard... God, it sounds so much more beautiful when you say it. <laughs> but it's, I um, also love carbonara.
1: <laughs> but yeah. But it to- is really good. And I actually, I have Maria's recipe and it's one egg yolk per person. Only the yolks no white. Yeah. One table, one heaped tablespoon of parmesan per person. So that's all you need, a bit okay. of black pepper. And then you keep back the water from the cooking water and then obviously the hot pancetta. So it's like, hot, bubbling hot yeah. pancetta. But it's so quick and so easy to make and so incredibly yummy. So incredibly That's a real go-to. I love that. Yeah, But any kind of pasta, pasta with limone, with lemon and cream sauce, that's a favourite. Even just with a little bit of olive oil and salt. and Yeah. Pancetta. And do you always make your own pasta? Funny enough, I don't make it that okay. often. I think that's quite an Italian thing. It's quite funny because I think Italians, there's such good fresh pasta that you can buy... In Italy, in the shop. Yeah. But for ravioli and so forth, usually buy it. Sometimes I'll make it, if there's a particular filling that I'm craving, then I will make it. Or if I just feel like playing around in the kitchen, it's a really soothing, fun thing to do. Yeah.
0: But But sort of day-to-day. Day-to-day, just use good dried pasta. Yeah. That tip about the pasta water, I feel like that's something that's only... We've only heard about over here, I mean, maybe sort of five years ago. But before that, I feel like people didn't really, it's, that wasn't well known, was it? No, but it's 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 brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it, it sort of makes the it, sauce creamy without
1: adding. And it adds a little bit more flavor to the sauce. It gives that such a saltiness. Because I think it takes some of the, the starch that's been absorbed from yeah. the pasta and you mix it in. And the other thing that's incredibly important is to really salt the water. You just keep far more salt than you think is sensible. Yeah.
0: Into the water, yeah. People get really scared by that, but it's not Mm. like you're going to eat all of that salt. It's just really no, you're not. You I, I think it would be really hard to over salt the past the water. Yeah.
1: They always say it should taste as salty as the sea. And that always
0: seems quite romantic to me. I'm kind of like, what does the sea taste like? Very salty. (laughs) Very salty.
1: It is very salty.
0: (laughs) You have a section on the Rialto market and the way you write about your daily shopping. I mean, to be honest, it just had me green with envy. It sounds just like the loveliest way of life. Does it feel like that as you're living it?
1: I have to say, I really love it. I do appreciate it. And I think the fact that I spend more time here in London now than I did obviously growing up when I was in Venice full time makes me appreciate it even more Definitely. because it's such a contrast.
0: And there aren't really supermarkets.
1: No. So when I was growing up, there actually weren't any supermarkets. There was one supermarket the opposite end of town. Now there are a few more. There are some, but people still really shop at the market. There yeah. is that culture. And it has the best it has the best produce. It's no more expensive. It's open every morning. It's very convenient. It's easy to do.
0: Yeah. I love in the book how you sort of share the idea that vegetables shouldn't just be the side dish. Like they can be the main event in their own right.
1: I think they really can. It's so funny. I think particularly in the Anglo-Saxon world, we have such a culture of it's ingrained in us so early to think of vegetables as good for us. And we focus so much on how good for us they are, which of course they are, but it's easy to lose sight of how delicious they are and how exciting they can be. Whereas in Italy, it seems to be the other way around. And the vegetable really is celebrated. Yeah, that's
0: so true. The moment you say something's good for you, You, you it's like... You instantly
1: don't want it. (laughs) You're sort of instantly (laughs) dreading it and looking forward to to what comes after it once you've said it?
0: We are such strange creatures. We are. Yeah, that is very, very true. You describe the market as never changing, but at the same time, ever evolving, which is such a beautiful line.
1: <laughs> well, it is though, because it's so funny. It's, it the market is much certainly has been physically the same since I was. Six years old or younger, probably longer than that. I just don't have a (laughs) recognition of it. And it is this ancient, ancient market that has been there since, you know, before Shakespeare writes about it. So it is incredibly ancient and permanent in that way, but it evolves with the season. Definitely. And it looks different in very different in March from how it looks in May, from how it looks in late August, from how it will look in December. And you really see that with a produce and you can't get
0: persimmons in July. You just can't. But in November they're everywhere. Yeah. And I love how you say, if you miss something, you can be sad, but actually you'll see it again next year. That's
1: such a lovely attitude. And what I find is I appreciate it so much more. So I really look forward to the strawberry season or at the moment, they're just started the first of the kind of garden peas that come in the pods, which are incredible and so sweet and so yummy. You make grisier bisi with them. The kind of recipe for it in the book, it's a very soupy risotto with these fresh garden peas. And it's absolutely delicious, but now is their time and we'll probably have them until end of April, sometimes early May, depending on what's happening with the weather gods and so forth. Yeah. But but then they're gone and then we don't get them until next year. So it's really, really exciting
0: when yeah. you first sight them at the market. That is a much more exciting way of shopping, isn't it? Sort of never knowing exactly what you're going to get and then using what, what it, what's there rather than just sort of knowing that you could just pick up a pineapple whenever you want
1: it, it I think it is it's, mm. it's fun it helps it, it help. and also I'm the kind of person that I could just eat the same thing again and again yeah. and again so it works quite well for me yeah. personally because I go through a month of just living off one thing it Does me too but... <laughs> and then I can move on to the next I have a gentle prompt yes from
0: the... <laughs> nature's prompt Nature, yeah. the sixth desert island dish is your go-to dinner party dish I think that's something
1: like, it's probably some kind of roast because you just pop it in the oven. And if you leave it in the oven for a bit longer than expected, because your friends are late, it really doesn't matter. And you can relax and enjoy being with them. I think it's probably something like there's a recipe in the book for roasted duck legs mm. with roasted plums. And actually we're having that for dinner too. <gasps> And I love it. It's delicious. I love roasted fruit with meat. It kind of that lovely, sweet, savoury thing, a bit like having apple sauce with pork, but sort of Lower maintenance because yeah. all you have to do is <laughs> pop it in the oven and and cook it. And and I
0: love duck. I think it's a massively undervalued. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really underrated, isn't yeah, it? It is it's so good. Mm, it's so good. Um, you've, growing up, your mom obviously loved entertaining and didn't think anything of having sort of eighteen people to lunch. Is that yes. something that just doesn't phase you at all? It, the more the merrier.
1: The more the merrier. I do think that. I think if you're cooking for two or you're cooking for ten, that actually is very little different.
0: Yeah. Once you've decided you're going to cook
1: if you scale it up. Yeah. Do you ever get flustered? I think we all get flustered yeah. sometimes, <laughs> but, um, that does, that's not what flusters me. Yeah. Um, what flusters me is like my meringue's not working okay, out yeah. <laughs> or something. I'm like, why? What has gone wrong? <laughs> and what would you serve for pudding? Poached amaretto peaches. I love or meringues. I love meringues. Yeah. other
0: than when they, I mean, they don't yes, actually go wrong, but, but when, when they, they do, do go wrong, it's very annoying. It's very
1: annoying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you split your time between London and Venice. What do you crave the most from Venice when you're in London and vice versa?
1: I think I crave, other than the food when I'm in London, I crave the quiet and there's a sort of a peace in Venice that comes, I think, from Quite simply, there not being any cars. Yeah, and, you know, I didn't really notice it until I get there, and, and I'm like, oh gosh, why is it's just that just feel lighter and calmer. And I think I, mean, I miss that's it. amazing, isn't it? It is incredible. Yeah, it really. And in this day and age, as we're all so busy to to have that
0: piece is yeah, it's so nice, valuable
1: for me, and and wonderful for things like writing or for being creative, just to kind of give you that space, definitely to,
0: to focus on. And Venice is like a very in, is very inspiring city in that way yeah um, is there anything you crave from london when you're there or is that i it... miss my friends <laughs> yeah. i have so, i mean
1: i have a lot of friends in venice but there are so many exciting and inspiring people in london and all doing incredible things and i guess in london as well there's the I always fabulous new restaurants or fantastic show. There's a there's a lot that's
0: exciting and inspiring going on. Yeah, that's true. It's a very good balance of the two, I think. It's <laughs> very clever. So the last desert island dish is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. So I think this would be lobster spaghetti it's very great very, option very yeah
1: <laughs> and if I were allowed pudding which oh you definitely are yeah because I piece. am going to a desert yeah. island yeah. after all <laughs> be very mean to so me <laughs> no my mother's flourless chocolate cake <gasps> which is I genuinely think I've tried so many chocolate cakes over the course of my life for research purposes and it is I just still think the best cake it's <gasps> what really is it good. that makes it so good it's I don't know what it is, but it's basically butter, chocolate, eggs and sugar. I mean. And it's sort of halfway between a mousse and a chocolate cake. Oddly, the older it gets, oh, yeah. it's the sort of denser and yummier and chocolateier it gets. I, I like so that in sort the of, pudding. It's really good. So you have it and you do the massive birthday cake. And then three days later there's still a bit left in the fridge because it's quite heavy going. So you and it just
0: you're having your leftovers and they're just so incredible. Yes, but I'm definitely joining you for this last meal. That sounds <laughs> amazing. Sounds amazing. And you're Bring allowed... Bring a friend. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> I do to share All it. All the lobster spaghetti for us. <laughs> you're allowed to take with you one luxury item. What do you want to take with you?
1: Can I take a Kindle with a... Back, massive backlog of all the books that I wish I
0: had read. Yes, so I think I'm going to have time. Yeah, you're going to have time. <laughs> That's a very good option. Thank you so much, Skye, for letting us Thank hear your you. Desert Island dishes. It's been so <laughs> fun. So anyone who knows me will know how much I love pasta. So that was all right up my street. And I feel like we should try and arrange to send Sky to the Desert Island purely so that I could join her in eating her final Desert Island dish. Ugh, it just sounds heavenly. I may sound very calm in today's episode, but in reality, if you're listening in real time, I'm getting married tomorrow. So at this precise moment, I will probably be beavering away making my wedding cake, which seemed like a really good idea at the time. Thank you so much for listening. Do come and say hi on Instagram at Made by Margie. And you can head to the website, www.desertislanddishes.co for the full list of episodes. Thank you so much. And I will see you next week. Bye.